some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The details might sound familiar. One morning, an unwitting passerby spotted something odd and went to investigate. What he discovered was a grisly sight, a pregnant woman's decapitated body. But this isn't the Lacey Peterson case, you know, the 2002 case with a husband and the missing wife. This one happened in 1896 back when Grover Cleveland was president and Utah was being admitted as the 45th U.S. state. Just 10 years earlier was the birth of the modern-day car. Horses and buggies were the main mode of transportation. The passerby was a 17-year-old named Johnny Hewling, who worked as a farmhand on a hunk of land in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. That's in Campbell County, which is across the river from Cincinnati. If we're being precise, the farmhand Hewling wasn't exactly passing. He was pruning. He had climbed up an apple tree to snip off dead branches when, from his high perch, he spotted a strange bundle on the ground and went to investigate. Hewling worked for a farmer named James Locke. The Locke farm was in an odd triangular shape that had a steep hill covered with heavy underbrush. The headless body was discovered down the hill where police had to walk a bit to get to. When they did, they found the body lying on its stomach in a pool of blood, arms outstretched. It appeared she had defensive wounds on her hands, suggesting she'd put up a fight against a sharp instrument. Police assumed that sharp instrument likely was the same one used to separate her head from her body. It was a gruesome scene, says Laura Rowland, who knows a lot about this case for reasons I'll explain a bit later. The police at the time determined that she was actually still alive when they did that because of the way the blood was splattered everywhere around her body. The body was clothed, but there was nothing distinctive about the dress. Given the location of the body near Newport, which, if you know your Kentucky history, you might recognize Newport as the original Sin City. It was known for its mob ties and debauchery. It'd be decades before Las Vegas stole the title. Investigators assumed at first she must have been a prostitute. But then, a shoe merchant noticed her shoes. They were leather around the foot, then topped with cloth. What happened next especially fascinates Andrew Young, 
a writer and historian who wrote a book about the Pearl Bryan case a few years ago. There was a shoe dealer named Pook. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's P-O-O-C-K. And he was in Newport when the body was found. And he went and noticed that her feet were exceptionally small and looked at her shoes that were with her body at White's funeral home in Newport. And he was able to figure out what store they came from in Greencastle. That's Greencastle, Indiana, which at the time was still a really new town in Putnam County. This was the first clue suggesting that the murdered woman might not be local. Police sent a telegraph to Greencastle and learned from the Portsmouth shoemaker that a dozen shoes of that style had been sold to a firm in Greencastle at a store called Lewis and Hayes. The store kept good records, so police began tracking down the buyers of each of those dozen pairs of shoes. They had tracked the first eight, then reached the ninth pair and found that they had been bought by a woman named Pearl Bryan in November 1895. They tried to find Pearl, quietly, because spreading rumors that she'd been found dead near Cincinnati would be awfully rude, and learned she came from a good home and had left town a few days prior to visit family friends in Indianapolis. Interestingly, the shoes on the feet of the dead girl were an unusually small size 3. Pearl Bryan wore size 3 shoes. Meanwhile, the gruesome discovery of a headless body made headlines far beyond Cincinnati, reaching all the way to Greencastle, which was about 150 miles away. Pearl's family read about the horrific crime, and something about the description of the corpse made them lose their stomachs. The body was described as having thin, seamstress-like hands with a small wart. Pearl sewed and had such a wart. But she was supposed to be in Indianapolis, so they kept calm while sending a telegram to friends in Indiana's capital city. The calm snapped when the friends replied that Pearl wasn't there and never had been. While the pieces were falling together at Pearl's home, a friend of Pearl's second cousin was figuring things out too. A.W. Early worked for Western Union in Greencastle and had an interesting relationship with Will Wood. The two men were incredibly close, so much so that Wood let Early read his correspondence. From reading the letters, Early knew why Pearl was in Cincinnati and not in Indianapolis. With all this knowledge, he rushed to police to say, Hey, not only can I tell you whose body you've got, but I think I might know who killed her too. If police had had any question before, it was now resolved. The headless corpse belonged to Pearl Bryan. Pearl was the youngest daughter of a farmer in Greencastle. The family was well off, and Pearl taught Sunday school. Her home was described in one newspaper story as a rambling white mansion with green shutters set back from the road behind a clump of pine trees. Pearl had attended public school, graduating from Greencastle's high school in 1892. She was said to be very pretty, with blue eyes and blonde hair and a perfect complexion. She was a sweet and sunny farm girl, though she didn't really have close friends. She seemed to be too quiet and reserved to deeply connect with other people. Though as she got older, she drew more male attention. The newspaper states, quote, As a virtuous young woman, her reputation was never impugned until this flood of scandal, end quote. 
Back at Lock Farm, word had spread of the farmhand's horrific discovery, which, for some reason, drew all the townsfolk out as though on a grisly field trip. James Locke didn't want all these people trampling his land, so he told Hewling, his farmhand, to amend where he had found the body and move it a bit up the hill, closer to where people were arriving, so that they wouldn't tromp on so much of his land. That had the inadvertent benefit of better preserving the crime scene. Bloodhounds were brought to try and track the scent. The dogs led detectives to the Covington Reservoir in Fort Thomas, which authorities then had drained in hopes of finding Pearl's head. It wasn't there. A coroner performed Pearl's autopsy and learned that Pearl had been five months pregnant and that her fetus had likely been alive until Pearl died. The autopsy also found cocaine in her system. Nowadays, when a pregnant woman is found dead, especially an unwed Sunday school teaching woman, police would tend to look at the baby's father first. That was just as true in 1896. And finding that man didn't take them long. It turned out that Pearl had been introduced by her second cousin, Will Woods, to an attractive, steely-eyed man named Scott Jackson about three years before her death. Scott came from a respectable family. His father was a well-known sea captain, while his mother Minnie volunteered at her church. Scott's dad died when he was still young, though, causing him and his mother to move around a good bit. Eventually, Scott landed at dental school in Indiana. His mother moved to Greencastle. At some point, Scott moved to Cincinnati to continue his dental training, but would travel back to Greencastle to visit his mom fairly regularly. He and Pearl got friendly. They would meet up when Scott was back in town and go for buggy rides. At first, friendly just meant friendly. But sometime in 1895, friendly started to take on a more euphemistic meaning. After one of Scott's visits, Pearl made a discovery about which she confided in her cousin Will and apparently no one else. As Roland says, Nowadays, people, you know, whether that's fortunate or unfortunate, people really don't bat an eye at something like that. But back then, I would imagine she would have definitely kept it a secret, especially from her family. She had no intention of keeping it a secret from the baby's father, however. At some point, she had contacted Scott and told him that she was pregnant. And he had no desire, from what we understand, you know, to marry her or, you know, help her in any way. So he persuaded her to come to Cincinnati. And I think she had told her parents that she was going to visit a friend in Indianapolis. And so they didn't know she was even coming to Cincinnati, but she did. Will told Pearl that Scott had arranged for a doctor and chemist to save the family shame. And he said Pearl was on board. I never saw her so happy in my life, he said. Pearl arrived at the city's Grand Central Station on Tuesday night, January 28, 1896. It's not totally clear what happened once she arrived. There are big chunks of time unaccounted for. But witnesses over the next couple of days helped to at least provide pieces of the puzzle, even if they didn't all fit perfectly together. It seems that when Scott Jackson suggested he and Pearl sort things out, they both agreed that should happen, but they didn't quite agree on how to do it. Pearl thought Scott was going to marry her. Scott, age 28 to Pearl's 22, apparently meant for Pearl to have an abortion and then move on with her life without him. Scott enlisted a friend he had met at dental school, his roommate, a guy named Alonzo Walling, to help with the situation. Alonzo and Scott were spotted several times with Pearl in various parts of the city. 
Here are some of the scenes that witnesses described. After Pearl arrived in Cincinnati, the trio was spotted at 4th and Elm, that's downtown, arguing loudly. Workers at a business nearby said they overheard the men talking to Pearl about an abortion, but Pearl angrily shouted that she'd go back to Greencastle the next day, tell her brother what was happening, and he would see to it that wrong was righted. Apparently placated by Alonzo and Scott, Pearl didn't take the train out of town the next day. Instead, that night, the three were spotted at a tavern at 4th and Plum Streets. They argued again, and a porter said he spotted one of the men putting something into Pearl's sarsaparilla. The 1890s equivalent of a taxicab driver, a stable and hack driver, said he picked up the trio at 4th and Plum Streets in the evening. One man sat next to the driver. The other man sat in the hack with a woman who was either very ill or drugged. She was moaning and in obvious pain. The men told the driver to drive across the river into Kentucky, entering Newport at York Street. They gave him turn-by-turn directions, ultimately leading him to the lock farm. The girl's steady moans became much louder, and she started crying, too. The coachman had no idea what was going on and started to get scared. When the trio finally got out, the two men supporting the weight of the drugged or sick girl, the driver hightailed it. Pearl was never seen alive again. The day her body was found, Alonzo and Scott went back to the tavern at 4th and Plum and asked the bartender to hold on to a bag for them. The bartender noticed the bag was heavy and asked if it might carry a bowling ball. The men didn't answer. Scott retrieved the bag the next night, then later brought it back again, though this time it felt empty. You can see where suspicions are headed here. Police believed that Scott wanted Pearl killed because she refused to get an abortion and threatened to tell her family about her pregnancy and Scott's dereliction of duty. But how did he do it? How did he get Alonzo to help? And what on earth did they do with the poor woman's head? Alonzo Walling and Scott Jackson were about as different personality-wise as two men can be. Scott was charming and outgoing, clearly a leader. He had an undeniable charisma that made him popular with young women. What everyone had to say about him was that he was kind of a flanderer. He was a party boy. And I think it's pretty obvious that he did not want to be tied down to Pearl and he did not want to have a child. Scott had also been in his fair share of trouble. Before he enrolled in dental school, he worked in New Jersey, opening mail in search of checks sent to the Pennsylvania Railroad. His job was to collect the checks, add them up, and deposit them into the railroad's accounts. His boss figured they had better uses for that money, so he and Scott devised a scheme to steal some of the checks and split the money, most of which they spent at saloons and on horse betting. This was no petty theft, not even by today's standards. They pocketed some $32,000. If you plug that amount into an inflation calculator, it's the equivalent of nearly a million dollars today. Both Scott and his boss were charged, but the first trial ended in a hung jury. For the second trial, prosecutors had Scott testify against his boss in exchange for the charges being dropped against him. Scott did so, the boss was convicted, and Scott was a free man. It was soon after that that he enrolled in the Indianapolis Dental School. Alonzo was far less outgoing. 
He was a few inches taller than Scott, but carried himself as though much smaller. To people who had the opportunity to talk with both men, it seemed pretty evident that Alonzo was the follower and Scott the leader. At first, both men denied even knowing what happened to Pearl, much less having killed her. It didn't take long for police to gather evidence that suggested otherwise. First, a Cincinnati druggist named H.C. Ulin told investigators he had sold Scott cocaine a few days before Pearl's body was found. At the time, cocaine wasn't just legal, but you could buy it without a prescription. Seeing as cocaine was found in Pearl's system, that was noteworthy. Second, the clothes Alonzo and Scott wore the night Pearl died were located in various spots. Scott's coat in a sewer, Alonzo's trousers in a locker at the dental college, which was near downtown. And every item found appeared to be spattered with blood. The bag that Scott had asked a barkeep to hold onto the day Pearl's body was found, the bag that felt like it might contain a bowling ball, was identified as Pearl's valise. Inside of it were blonde hairs and clots of blood. Dirt found on the men's clothing looked the same as dirt found on Locke's farm. Now, if you remember, Pearl met Scott through her second cousin, Will Wood. Four days after Pearl's murder, Scott wrote Will a letter that ended up being read during his trial. In the letter, Scott told Wood to tell Pearl's family that she was tired of Greencastle and moved away to Chicago. He wrote, quote, Get that letter off without a second's delay. Be careful what you write me, end quote. Police intercepted this letter and arrested Will as an accomplice in the murder. He was soon freed. Another suspected accomplice was arrested soon after, a woman named Laura, or Lulu Hollingsworth. She came out in Scott Jackson's trial. She said she knew Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling. People didn't take her very seriously, and so there wasn't a very big investigation that I found into her claims. Lulu stepped forward, saying she had information about Pearl's last days. She told police she spotted Pearl at Cincinnati's train station. Lulu was boarding a train there, and Pearl had just arrived. Lulu said the encounter was at about 4 p.m., and that during their talk, Pearl told her all about her pregnancy and the nerves accompanying it. Lulu said she gave Pearl a prescription to help her out of her condition, and that Pearl actually used the prescription to intentionally kill herself. You heard right. She said that the headless woman had actually taken her own life. She had no explanation for where her head went. Police quickly realized that Lulu was smitten with Scott, and they arrested her on suspicion of aiding in the murder. A day later, she was released after authorities felt satisfied she had nothing to do with it. Still, she lingered over the case like a sickly fog. At one point, she told police she'd performed an abortion on Pearl in a stairway along Kentucky Avenue. At another moment, she said someone else had given Pearl an abortion and that Pearl had accidentally died because of it. Trouble is, according to the coroner, there had been no abortion or even apparent attempt. As described in the book, Murders That Made Headlines, quote, two careful post-mortem examinations absolutely preclude abortion, natural or attempted, as well as death by poisoning. The knife cuts on the poor girl's hand were made while struggling for a life with her murderers, and the pool of blood where she lay set at rest the theory she was first killed by anesthetics, 
and then taken out and beheaded, end quote. While Lulu's ramblings didn't shed much light, a station watchman was able to offer some info police considered valuable. Pat Kinney said he saw Alonzo and Pearl at the depot's waiting room on the afternoon of the murder. Pearl was sobbing, he said. Alonzo seemed to be attempting to placate her. It was clearly a tough job because Pearl was crying bitterly for two or three hours, Kinney said. In the end... Alonzo must have convinced her to stay. The two walked out of the station at about 4.10 p.m. This is one of those crucial moments where, in hindsight, you can see that just two outcomes were possible. That Pearl bored a train out of town or that she put her faith in a man she no doubt loved. One path would save her life, the other would end it. She chose wrong. Pearl's final day alive seemed pretty normal to people who knew Scott and Alonzo. Aside from the detour to the train station, they kept their schedules pretty much the same as usual. They both went to class at dental school that day, which was a Thursday. A porter named Alan Johnson ran into Alonzo and Scott later that night at the saloon. Pearl was with them, which Johnson noticed. He was used to seeing Scott with women, but this woman stood out because she was, quote, not of the class that generally visited the saloon, end quote. At one point, Pearl left the table and stayed in the ladies' room for about 15 minutes. That also stood out. Scott asked the saloon owner, a man named Dave Wallingford, to borrow $2.00 and Wallingford obliged. Scott, Alonzo, and Pearl ate dinner. Scott ordered himself a whiskey and a sarsaparilla for Pearl. He took the small vial of cocaine he'd bought at the pharmacy and emptied its contents into Pearl's beverage. He wasn't very discreet about it. Pearl didn't notice, but the porter friend did and said he was willing to testify to it, even though Scott's defense lawyer offered to pay him not to take the stand. Oh, and remember that hack and buggy driver, the one who picked up Scott, Alonzo, and Pearl at the restaurant? He testified, too. He was just very uncomfortable because it was 1896. The cab driver was black, and he didn't really want to be involved in anything because, you know, I guess he was in fear that he could get blamed for it if something went wrong. So in his testimony, he said he pulled over in front of the distillery and wanted them to get out because he was scared, and they refused and told him to keep going. So he did. He went a couple miles further, and he ended up in what is now the city of Fort Thomas. The cabbie was so unnerved that when he was told to stop, he started running. As he ran... The cab driver said he heard her scream, and then he never heard any other sound. So he actually took off on foot, and he left his horse and everything behind, and he just ran away. Now, things with this case were already unusual, but they got even more bizarre pre-trial. At one point, police brought in a phrenologist to scientifically determine what kind of personality Scott had. They did, like, measurements of his head and stuff, and they said that he was unscrupulous, without morals, just a, you know, piece of garbage, basically, which is probably... Not untrue. <laughs> I mean, they also said that the roommate who I have a little more sympathy for, Alonzo Walling, they said that he was a criminal mastermind and was like Napoleon based off of the shape of his head. That seemed like cutting edge stuff at the time, but today we know it's just pseudoscience. 
Police were absolutely certain Alonzo and Scott were responsible for Pearl's death and beheading, and they were confident they had enough evidence to convince a jury. But what they really wanted was Pearl's head. It was important to her family. They wanted to bury her whole. So here are some of the bizarre choices police made in their investigation. They brought Scott and Alonzo to the undertaker's office to see Pearl's body. And they didn't even do it alone. Pearl's sister was there, as was Will, not her cousin this time, but one of her brothers. Several police officials were there too. You've probably seen cop shows in which a detective shows a suspect crime scene photos in hopes of shocking him or triggering remorse and therefore getting more info. Photography wasn't as ubiquitous back then as it would be in just a few years. So this is the 1896 version of that concept. Authorities hoped that seeing the headless corpse and hearing the family members sob and grieve might weigh on their consciences and loosen their tongues. Edward Black, the undertaker, said later that the effort failed. Jackson acted as if completely heartless, he said. He lowered his eyes when brought to the presence of the body. I could not discover one bit of evidence in his manner of any feeling. Black thought Alonzo was a bit nervous, but really both of them looked like they were IDing a stolen radio, not a human being. The only hint that the situation was a bit more serious than that was the fact that neither man seemed able to meet Pearl's brother's gaze. Police Chief Phil Deach wasn't content with just showing the men the body, though. He interrogated them right then and there in front of Pearl's sister and brother. The men said, well, that sure seems to be Pearl's body, but we don't know how she got that way. Pearl's sister fell to her knees, begging that they tell her where to find her sister's head. They wouldn't answer. And because this story was so high profile, reporters covering it were basically rabid. An Inquirer reporter named Edward Anthony actually went searching for Pearl's head in a sewer close to the death site. He didn't find the head, but he did find Scott Jackson's coat. It had been wrapped in newspaper and was covered in blood. This reporter also misrepresented himself as an investigator to Alonzo. A newspaper story reads, quote, An Inquirer reporter was lucky enough to get into the cell room at the Central Station at 11.30 last night, and he went at once to Walling's cell, end quote. Anthony told Alonzo that it would be better for him to tell the truth. Alonzo, thinking he was speaking to an investigator being particularly nice to him, said, You have treated me right, and I'm going to tell you all I know about this affair. He told Anthony that Scott's plans had changed a few times. At one point, Scott planned to drug Pearl with cocaine and then give her a fatal dose of arsenic. But then Alonzo heard him asking a doctor what method was the easiest way to kill a woman. And the doctor said an injection of hydrocyanic acid would kill a person before the needle could be drawn out. The acid is also called prussic acid because it had once been an ingredient in making Prussian blue. A doctor told reporters that the acid was the most deadly poison known. One drop will kill, he said. Alonzo said Scott found some of the acid, but still tried the cocaine first. When it didn't work quickly, he apparently injected Pearl with the acid to hasten her death. Now, sometimes when a case has two defendants, they stand trial together. Not this time. 
Scott and Alonzo had separate trials. The first came in April 1896, just three months after the death. Scott was the defendant. Newspaper coverage at the time suggests the trial was just as tedious as murder trials are today, which isn't a bad thing. Lots of dry testimony is needed to establish the base set of facts. Like, for example, that the body was definitely Pearl Bryan. To speak to that, Pearl's sister identified her clothes and shoes. Jurors got to see the items up close, including the bloody dress and the stained underwear. They took some of Pearl Bryan's clothes and put it on a dummy and sort of like propped it up in the courtroom, which, you know, is distracting to say the least and just kind of macabre. Both Pearl's sister and mother said they had met Scott Jackson several times. They trusted him. Pearl often went on buggy rides with Scott, they said. Fred Bryan, the older brother Pearl had threatened Scott with, removed any lingering doubt about the slain woman's identity when he pulled a key from his pocket and slipped it into a lock on the valise. The key fit, the lock clicked open. The valise, he explained, had actually been his first. He'd bought it five years earlier in Indianapolis. He never could have imagined it would one day carry his sister's head. All of this happened in the first days of Scott's trial, and most of it happened again in Alonzo's. To streamline things, I'm going to merge the testimony. Much of the evidence in the cases was circumstantial, but that's often the case in any trial. The only direct evidence is an eyewitness account which, ironically, is some of the least reliable evidence. In Pearl's case, the circumstantial evidence wasn't as airtight as it would surely be today. They found blood, for example, but back then didn't have a way to test for type, much less DNA. But here are some of the bits and pieces authorities pulled together. First, about intent. You'll remember that Lulu Hollingsworth said Pearl's death was accidental. That changes the slaying a great deal from one that's premeditated. Police set about to prove that this death was no accident. Not only did a Cincinnati druggist testify that Scott bought cocaine shortly before Pearl's death, but another witness testified about a strange conversation he'd heard regarding the drug. Dr. W.D. Littler, or it might be Litter, you'd be amazed how inconsistent newspapers were with names back then, but I'm going with Littler. Anyway, Dr. Littler didn't know Scott well, but he'd met him through the dental school about six months before Pearl's murder. Ten days before a body was discovered, Littler walked by a room where Alonzo and Scott were talking, and Scott beckoned him to come in. Scott told Littler that he and Alonzo disagreed about something, and they were hoping he might know the answer to the question they were pondering. Then they asked if one grain of cocaine in a gram of water would have the same effect on someone ingesting it as a grain would in one half gram of water. Scott said he thought the effect would be the same on the cocaine consumer. Alonzo disagreed. Littler, thinking it was just an oddball hypothetical conversation, said he thought the effects would be the same and went on his way. Also, there had been letters sent from Scott to Will Wood, the second cousin, that certainly suggested sinister plans. The letters were deemed by the judge to be vulgar, so he excused women from the courtroom before the jury heard their contents. As a wire story read, quote, These letters are too coarse and indecent to be printed. One sentence reads, Doc, if you have let a chance go by, I'll give you hell. Another reads, 
If you have grown chicken-hearted, you ought to be shot, end quote. The evidence points to Scott having made plans, and Alonzo perhaps tagging along for the ride. The two were roommates, and Alonzo supposedly had performed a couple of abortions for women in the past. Maybe he thought Scott's darker impulses would be controlled once that whole baby thing was out of the way. Asked on the stand if he believed Scott when he prattled on about his plans, Alonzo said no. He didn't think the comments were in earnest. Judging by Scott's letters, though, he not only prepped to do the deed, but he harassed people who seemed to lose their nerve. In the end, separate juries convicted each man. Both were sentenced to death. The crime was so heinous and had enraged so many that the county sheriff worried about a lynching. In fact, soon after Scott and Alonzo were sentenced, a prison riot broke out where they were held and several inmates escaped. Scott and Alonzo stayed put. They figured if they busted out, they'd likely be handing themselves over to a lynch mob. The date of the hanging was March 21, 1897, 14 months after the slaying. At the last minute, and I mean that literally because the hanging was scheduled for 9 a.m., and this happened just as the march to the scaffold began, Scott offered a confession that cleared Alonzo. He wept like a child as he cried out that Walling was not guilty, according to a Wire story. This move bought the men some time. The hanging was delayed a few hours as the state's governor considered sparing Alonzo's life. In fact, Governor Bradley instructed the county sheriff that Alonzo could live if Scott cleared him. Towards the end when they were about to be hung, everyone was thinking, not, maybe not everyone, but a, but a few people, especially Cal Krim, who was one of the detectives, thought that Scott Jackson would be like, you know what, it was all me, don't hang Alonzo. But for some reason, Scott changed his mind and said Alonzo was the killer after all. Alonzo all but begged him as the ropes were tied around their necks, but Scott, with those steely eyes, had apparently decided if he was going out, Alonzo was coming with him. And so Alonzo hung right beside him, both of them professing their innocence with their last words. The two men had separate traps beneath them, but just one lever controlled the traps. When the time came, the lever was pulled, the traps opened, and the men violently dropped. Their necks didn't break, newspaper coverage says. Instead, the men died slowly and painfully, writhing at the end of their ropes until they suffocated. The public hanging had drawn a huge crowd of onlookers. It was the last public hanging in Campbell County. For decades after Pearl's death, her gruesome fate continued to infuriate and fascinate. Will Wood, the second cousin, had a cloud of suspicion hanging over him for the rest of his life. He had to move to feel safe because so many people thought he was responsible, not just for introducing Pearl and Scott, but for encouraging Pearl to visit. Even A.W. Early, the Western Union guy who had been reading their letters, had to move. People were mad at him because, having read all the pertinent correspondence, he knew something was afoot, but didn't intervene and alert anyone. Maybe if he'd done something, the angry townsfolk reasoned, Pearl would never have gone to Cincinnati. Under the continues to fascinate heading, the case is still talked about in the Cincinnati region. That's how Andrew Young came to learn about it when he was earning his master's degree 
at Northern Kentucky University. It was just kind of a story that you heard around the classroom and stuff that other people would would be like, did you hear about this decapitated girl in 1896? He's thought a lot about why this story seems to resonate. I think that part of it is just that Pearl Bryan was young and had her whole life ahead of her. And then the gruesomeness of it, of actually being decapitated. Even after the men responsible were executed, memorabilia was sold by enterprising folk, including James Locke, the farmer on whose land the deed was done. Children were told Pearl's story as cautionary tale. She was, after all, killed by a man who wasn't her husband, but who had impregnated her. They figured you get two lessons rolled into one with that story. If you need more proof of the impact Pearl's death had on the region, look no further than Bobby Mackey's Music World, which sits on the land that, once upon a time, was home to the distillery in front of which the hack and buggy driver had pulled over as he tried to thwart Scott and Alonzo's plan. If it sounds like a precarious connection, that's because it is. Earlier, I mentioned Laura Rowland knows this case well. It's true, she does. But she's not a historian. She's actually one of the founders of Gatekeeper Paranormal, which for the past six years has led ghost tours and investigations at Bobby Mackey's. See, the word is that players in this case didn't disappear with their deaths. Some say they're still haunting the area. Roland has a pragmatic take on it all. I I hate to bust everybody's bubbles, but her connection to the Bobby Mackey property is, is a legend. The legend began in the 1980s when a worker began to feel like evil spirits inside of Bobby Mackey's were trying to take over his body. He became convinced Scott Jackson was among those spirits. And in the years that followed, several people have also reported seeing a headless specter there. Deep, deep in a lonely valley Where the violets fade and bloom there sleeps my own Pearl Bryan, so silent in I used contemporary newspapers to report this, which was made easier by the fact that newspapers back then damn near printed some testimony verbatim. I also used two books to flush things out, Haunted Ohio Books and Murders That Made Headlines, Crimes of Indiana. Special thanks to Laura Rowland and Andrew Young for lending their expertise. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. Mm-hmm.